0: All right, Colossians chapter 1, if you've got a Bible, that's where we're going to be. We're going to be finishing up chapter 1 today, praise the Lord. We've been in chapter 1 for, this will be the ninth week, and so um, it's taken us a while. It will speed up a little bit, though, after this, because uh, the the remainder of Colossians, uh, you know, it kind of contains itself in sort of narrative, larger chunks, the, the The passages are a little bit more longer in the truth that it contains, so um, we'll be working our way through Colossians probably through the summer. And we're still on target to move into our new location around July, so um, keep praying for that. And as Reynolds mentioned, um, please, we'd love for you to join us tonight from 5 to 6 uh, they've done a tremendous amount of work demoing the building, basically clearing out all of what used to be Zoo City, just to get it to be an empty shell, so you'll get to see it kind of empty, and then um, we'll pray it up tonight, and then and then we'll have other gatherings there as well to let you see the progress. So as you're, as you're opening to Colossians chapter 1, let me mention a couple things to you about the next week or two, some big things going on. Number one, I will not be here next Sunday, I'm going to be out of town this Thursday, I am going to Washington, D.C. to a conference, and it's really not a conference. It's actually just kind of a very small little group, and uh, it's pretty, pretty hard to get into this little thing, but it's a, it's a, there's a church in Washington, D.C., and it's called Capitol Hill Baptist Church. The pastor there is a well-known uh, figure kind of nationally and has a lot of things to say about church structure and leadership and how churches should organize themselves, and they offer kind of a what they call a weekender, which is kind of a behind-the-scenes look. They only allow 40 people to come at a time, 40 pastors from around the nation. And um, I was able to get in on that 40 this time, and so I'm going to be going Thursday, and I'll be coming back Monday night. And I'm really looking forward to this because it's not going to be a situation where you're kind of at a conference in a room with you know hundreds or thousands of people. But I'll actually be in a small room with a guy that's kind of been a mentor from afar, Mark Dever, to me for for several years now. So I'm really, really looking forward to that. So please pray for me as I travel. And next Sunday, uh, Hawk will be preaching. And so he's going to preach kind of a standalone message outside of Colossians or maybe in Colossians. Or we've been joking about that. But um, I told them don't do Colossians because then I'll have to come back and clean up the mess Um, But anyway, (laughs) I'm just just kidding. Uh, He would do a great job. He's a tremendous communicator and uh, just such a blessing to our church and um, has more than just energy. He's got wisdom and he's got a great gift. So next Sunday is going to be a great day. Also, I just want to let you know about what's going on with La Familia Evangelista. Um, We, as you know, sold our house a couple of months ago at the end of January, and um, we've been in a, an apartment, a kind of a, a nice apartment, but a little smaller. We have four children. Two of them are, uh, well, three of them are boys, but two of them are older, and the two older boys, the younger boy, still, still he's two, he basically kind of smells like baby powder unless he's got a full diaper, but the two older boys, man, they stink. I didn't realize that the, the apartment is, is smaller than our house and just the odors in that place, but anyway... Um, We have put a a contract down on a house, and um, we, Lord willing, will close uh, not this week, but next week, Tuesday. In fact, the day I come back from Washington, D.C., and so we are very excited about that house and really excited about um, being able to have people over and practice hospitality to you. Um, And another little benefit, it's it's down the street from my mother-in-law. And 15 years ago, when I first got married as a young husband, I never would have thought that I'd be so happy that I'm living down the street from my mother-in-law. But I am. I wish they were closer. I just, time has a way of maturing you. Um, and four kids have a way of making you realize how valuable uh, good grandmas and grandpas are. So anyway, um, well, hey, today we're going to finish up Chapter 1 of Colossians. And so um, the last couple of weeks have been pretty heavy. Last week in particular, I believe, was a very important message ...about the purpose of suffering in the life of a Christian. If you missed that, I really encourage you to get a CD. There should be some out in the foyer. If not, we'll make one for you. Or you can always go to the website and listen to it... ...or make your own CD from the website... ...or download it from iTunes or the podcast. Today, I hope, will be an encouraging message. really don't have any points. Just have this one overarching thought... ...that comes from this phrase that we're going to look at today. And it is this phrase that Christ is in us as Christians... And if that is true, and we believe it is, because the Bible says it, that changes everything. It changes how we interact with one another. It changes our relationship with one another. And it changes our ability to live in a broken world. So let's crank it up and get into Colossians 1. And before I do that, let's pray and ask God to help us. Lord, thank you for uh, the gathering of the saints for the people in this room who know you, for those that are searching for you, for your Holy Spirit that has drawn each one of us into this room today. We are thankful for that. This is not just happenstance. We're not just here because it's Sunday in the south. But we're here either as your children to worship you, to learn about you, to bless one another, to serve one another, to rejoice with one another, or we're here as people that are being and are in process of being drawn by the Holy Spirit unto salvation. So, Lord, would you tune our hearts now into the seriousness of this moment, because it is is—it's huge. There's, we are gathered to worship you, and so help us. Lord, thank you for this body of believers. Thank you for the packed-out group we had this weekend at the Point. Going through our membership class and just the beautiful spirit and the eagerness and the interest of those folks considering Cross Point as a home. God, we do not take that for granted. How good you've been to us. Thank you this morning for Lily Kalish again and your gift to us in bringing her to this faith family. Thank you for the country of China, her native land. God, would you bless the church in China? Would you let the underground church continue to spread like wildfire as the government tries to stamp it out? And Lord, would you now, as we open your word to Colossians chapter 1 and various other parts of the scriptures, would we unite our hearts with Chinese believers who have to smuggle Bibles in, and some may be gathered in an underground church in a house working off of one or two pages from a book or a letter. And we have the whole text to feast on today. So God, would you give us a strange combination of gravity and gladness as we approach your word. And come now, Holy Spirit, and open our eyes so that we might see and savor Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, Colossians chapter one verse. Let me start in verse 24, just to kind of catch us up. That's what we focused on last week. I'm going to read through the end of the chapter, and then we'll go back and make a couple points. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Verse 25, Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the Word of God fully known. Now let me just stop there, and this isn't one of the main points that we're going to settle on today, but I, I just want to throw these little tidbits of truth that I think are very important that help shape us as a body, is that Paul is saying that he was given this stewardship from God in order to make the Word of God fully known to the Colossians. And so Look, preacher, that's my, that's, that's why, other than being a husband to Jennifer and a father to my children, I was put on this earth to make the Word of God fully known. That's why we open the Bible. That's why we preach through the Bible. That's, that's our role. That's what we do. And if you're a young man that is being called into ministry, and if you're listening to this by podcast, or if you're here in this room and you think that ministry may be in your future, ministry is not primarily about environments or relationships or programs although those things might help serve but the ministry that god is calling you into is about preaching jesus and those scriptures and that's it i just had to get that off my back all right okay for all these guys out there preaching silliness uh, the word of god is all we got verse 26 i didn't want to get upset today come into let me shake off that angst all right okay Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Verse 26. Now listen. The mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. So the first time we've come across this word in Colossians, Paul is saying that there is a mystery that has previously been unrevealed but now it's being revealed to his saints. And so right now we should be asking ourselves, what is this mystery? Verse 27. To them... And that them is referring back to the saints in verse 26. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. And he's about to tell us what it is, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so he's saying that there was this mystery that has previously been shrouded or not shrouded completely revealed but now through Paul's ministry it is being revealed to them who are the saints that the gentiles and by the way if you don't know what a gentile is you are very likely one of them <laughs> unless the world when the bible speaks about Jews and gentiles the world is separated into separated into two types of people there are the ethnic Jews the uh, children of Abraham you know you know you did this story right? Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham and I am one of them kind of, not really though cuz you're you're a son of a daughter son or daughter of Abraham by faith, not by blood unless you're ethnically Jewish, right? And so you, there are the ethnic Jews, the Hebrews, children of Abraham, and then there's everybody else and we are called Gentiles. And so if you are, uh, if you are Hispanic, you are a Gentile. If you are white, you are a Gentile. If you're black, you're a Gentile. If you are half Italian, you are a Gentile. If you are Canadian Italian, you are a Gentile. If you, if you are from the country of California and you don't have any Jewish blood in you, you are a Gentile. If you are from the nation of Alabama and you, Don't have any Jewish blood in you. You are a Gentile. We're Gentiles, so that's us, okay? To them, to us, God chose to make known how great among, or no, to them, the, the Jews, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, All right, so we can read that verse in Colossians 1.27 and say, oh, okay, cool. So what he's saying is is that Christ is not only in the Jews, but he's also in the Gentiles. And in our 2010 context, that's kind of like, oh, well, that's cool, that's great. But we have no idea how huge and scandalous of a notion this would have been for a first century Jew to hear and for a first century Gentile to hear. Go, if you have a Bible, flip to the left, to Ephesians. Let me just kind of give you a little bit of background, a little bit more of Paul's unpacking of this idea. In Ephesians 3, he picks up this same idea. And by the way, Ephesians and Colossians have a lot of similarities. Very, very, um, He's writing to these churches, and a lot of his message is the same. He says in verse... Uh, Chapter 3, verse 20 says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace it was given to me for you, in other words, God raised me up, Paul, a Jew, so that I would go to you, a Gentile, how the mystery, verse 3, was made known to me by revelation. There's that word mystery again, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ." which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Verse 6. And there he's going to, in a little bit more detail, say what he said in Colossians 1.27. He says, The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Again, we're like, okay, cool. No big deal. I don't have any problem with that. I mean, people from Alabama need Jesus too. I'm okay with that. And people from California need Jesus. Black people need Jesus. Mexican people need Jesus. White people need Jesus. Canadians need Jesus. Italians Everybody need we, we, That's not so much of an unfamiliar thing to us. It's not, it's not offensive so much to us, right? But to a first century Jew and to a first century Gentile, that would be tremendously offensive. Keep flipping left to Acts chapter 15. I want you to uh, get the depth of how beautiful this is, and then we're going to hopefully make some um, applications for us as modern-day Americans, because I don't think any of us have problems with Gentiles, because we are are Gentiles, or or we don't have any problems with Jews, or uh, hopefully we don't have any problem with people from um, other cultures. Okay, so here's what's happening in the book of Acts, all right? Jesus has come, and he is a Jewish man. He is ethnically Jewish, he was born into a Jewish family, and so although he is God- Completely God from eternity past, the second person of the Trinity. Jesus is fully God, did not, He was not created, He is eternally pre-existent with the Father. God, the Trinity, three and one. It's a mystery that we can't fully explain on this earth, but in the fullness of time, Galatians says, Jesus comes and God becomes flesh in the person of a Jewish baby who grows up in a Jewish household. He is a Jewish man. And so Jesus has Jewish followers. These are His apostles and disciples in his 33 years on this earth. And so all of his early converts, most of them primarily, and his disciples are Jewish men and women. And so Jesus is is crucified, died, buried, and he resurrects from the dead. And he ascends to heaven and he pours out his Holy Spirit on a group of 120 people who are Jews. And they're gathered together in Acts chapter 2. In the upper room, and they are waiting for the promise of God because these are the Old Testament people. Remember, a couple weeks ago, or a couple months ago, we studied Nehemiah, and this was God's chosen people in the Old Testament through whom He would bring His blessing and His power. Well, these Jewish people are now gathered in the upper room, waiting for the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is poured out on them, and the church begins in Acts chapter 2. And up to this point, it's still primarily a Jewish club. And then the gospel starts advancing through the region, from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. And then in Acts chapter 18, something really interesting happens. Philip, one of the Jewish believers, is preaching the gospel in Samaria to these half-breeds, the Samaritans, who are half-Gentile, half-Jew, and, and, and certainly uh, not part of the ethnic Jew- Jewish nation. And all of a sudden, these Samaria- Samaritans receive Christ. And Philip is like, oh, oh no, I I made a mistake here. Um, You you nasty, pork-eating, uncircumcised, Sabbath-breaking, hairy-legged Gentiles are receiving Christ. I guess Jews had hair on their legs, too. But the point is, is that they received Christ. And so he calls Peter and James and John, and they show up. And he's like, "Uh, well, the Holy Spirit has fallen on them just like it did us. And they're like, well, okay. And then in Acts chapter 10, something really, uh, really beautiful happens. The, the Jewish icon of the apostles, Peter, is hanging out in a city called Joppa with, and he's staying at another guy's house whose name also happens to be Simon, because Peter's name is Simon Peter. And this particular Simon is a tanner who lived down by the sea. And there's this other guy, this Roman nasty Gentile named Cornelius, who is back in a city called Caesarea, who gets woken up in the middle of the night by an angel, and the angel tells this nasty Gentile that there's this man named Simon Peter, who's staying with this other guy named Simon Simon Peter, and he is living at the sea by Joppa on that side of the street, and he's a tanner. Go to him and tell him to come preach to you. Specific... (laughs) And so this Gentile gets up and he sends a couple of his soldiers to go to court, to, uh, to Joppa to get the Apostle Peter. Meanwhile, Peter has a dream. Maybe you've read about this. And Peter gets woken up and Peter's got a dream. He's meditating, praying to the Lord. And all of a sudden this sheet starts descending. And this sheet is filled with all sorts of birds and reptiles and animals, all of which would not be things that Jewish people would eat because it would be contrary to Jewish law. And then this voice uh, speaks to Peter and he says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter then begins to argue with the voice of God and says, no, I wouldn't do that. These animals are unclean. And that's actually not something you should say to God when he tells you to do something. And three more times that happens. And the voice of God tells him, Peter, don't, don't call unclean what I say is clean. And this becomes an analogy later on for the fact that, Peter, you are now to go preach the gospel to those pork-eating nasty Gentiles. Everything is mine, God is saying. And so right after he wakes up from the dream, he gets a knock on the door, and there's these three cats that Cornelius had sent to him, saying, Hey, I don't know, this is kind of weird, but Cornelius sent us to bring you back to Caesarea. And Peter's like, Oh my gosh, seriously? And so then Peter goes back... By the way, this is paraphrased. This isn't actually... Peter goes back to, with Cornelius's three soldiers, back to Caesarea, preaches the gospel. Look, this is, this is scandalous, because in a Jewish mindset, the gospel, they are the people of God. They have hated the Gentiles for centuries. And now Peter preaches the gospel to these Roman soldiers of the household of Cornelius and the gospel falls on them and then they receive Christ and everybody gets baptized and they're speaking in tongues. All sorts of craziness is going on and Peter's like, oh my gosh, these nasty Gentiles are becoming Christians. And then God raises up this man named Saul who then becomes Paul and he begins to preach and he goes through the Roman Empire and all sorts of Gentiles are getting saved and it is causing a bit of a stir. And so now that's where we are in Acts chapter 15 because the religious Jewish converted to Christianity Christians are upset that nasty Gentiles like you and me are becoming Christians. And so they have to have a church business meeting. That's what we do when things are wrong, right? And so that's what they do in Acts chapter 15. You know what? Just a second. I have been on the verge of a sneeze for the past 15 minutes. And I just need to... All right. Okay. There we go. I think I'm okay. Acts chapter 15. Sorry. Acts chapter 15, verse 1. Now, what's happened is Peter's preached to these Gentiles. They have received Christ. A little controversial. Peter's probably trying to keep it quiet. And then Paul has come on the scene, and he has been rescued by Christ miraculously. Jesus comes back down from heaven, slaps him around a little bit, knocks him off a horse, makes him go blind for three days, and then says, What's up, dude? Why are you persecuting my people? Like, be on my mission now. And Paul follows him and then goes and preaches the gospel to the Gentiles. And the Roman Empire is being turned upside down for Jesus, primarily by Gentile salvation. And it is troubling the Jews. And we got a church business meeting. Verse 1. But some of the men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers listen to this unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after, so what they're saying is, is now you you can't become a true Christian unless you go back and uphold this Old Testament law of being circumcised. By the way, um, what's always been kind of interesting to me—not be too graphic—who was the guy that checked that? Like, it, I mean, that's a tremendous temptation to lie. If you're a Gentile convert to Judaism during this time, like Acts thirteen fourteen, and this is an issue, and they're like, "Have you been circumcised?" I'm like. Yes, I have been circumcised. (laughs) Right away, they're making you sin. All right, verse 2. And after Paul and Barnabas, listen to this. Now, Paul realizes that the gospel is for everybody. And then these Jewish people are coming to add circumcision to the gospel. And listen, this is going to be very important because obviously we're being silly, but circumcision is not the issue for us today, right? But many other things are. And then in verse 2 it says, Paul... And Barnabas, I love this phrase, had no small dissension and debate with them. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Verse 3, So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, which was the headquarters there of the early church, They were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders and they declared all that God, they declared all that God had done with them. Verse 5, But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So what these, what these Jewish converts who were still kind of religious fanatics They've become Christians, but they're really missing the heart of the gospel because they're wanting to add something to the gospel. They're saying Jesus plus something, whether it's circumcision or dietary laws or Sabbath keeping or whatever, Jesus plus something equals salvation. When the heart of the New Testament message in the gospel in Romans and Galatians is that Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. In other words, by faith, And grace alone are we saved. We're not saved. It's not Jesus plus some work. It's Jesus plus no work on our part that saves us. But some of the believers belonged to the party said it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. Business meeting. Verse 7. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up to them, stood up and said to them, Brothers, You know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So he's hearkening back to that scene in Acts chapter 10 when God made him get up and go and preach to these Gentiles and they received the gospel. Verse 8. And God who knows the heart. "...bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did to us." Verse 9, "...and He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore..." Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples, listen to this, that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? So what he's saying is, is you are trying to make them adhere to circumcision and all of these laws of Moses in the Old Testament that quite honestly we ourselves as the people of God have been failing at for the past several centuries. So you're requiring them to be religious freaks when we couldn't even do it ourselves. Isn't that how religious culture is? Putting yokes on people that help us feel better about ourselves when really deep down inside we can't even do it ourselves. Verse 11, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. So here's the scandal that Paul is saying to the Colossians and to the Jews that would read this letter that Christ is for everyone. So how does this apply to us today? Because I don't think that circumcision or pork eating or Sabbath breaking or observance is necessarily an issue for us. See our issues that separate us and the things that we strap on people are much more subtle than these things and probably much more dangerous because they're not as obvious. And what I think Paul is saying to the Colossians, and he's saying to us, is that when the gospel listen, this isn't just this is very easy to grasp, but it's it's almost so simple that we miss it, that when the gospel truly and is rightly received by us. It completely shatters all barriers between all people for all time, everywhere that receive Christ. That means there are no longer middle class people and upper class people and poor people. There's no longer people that live in this neighborhood and people that live in that neighborhood. There's no longer people that went to this school and people that went to that school. There's there's no longer divisions between us. What this verse is saying is, is that Christ is living in you, Gentile, just like he's living in the chosen people of God in the Old Testament. And so, therefore, we are connected as a body. And what does that mean? Listen to me, and, I, and I've thought about this, and I'm choosing this analogy carefully because I believe it's true. It means that I am more connected in terms of my relationship as a spiritual body to a former Muslim terrorist who has converted to Christ than I am to my very own blood relative who does not yet know Jesus. Let me, let me repeat that. I am more connected, more bound to, grafted in with a former Muslim terrorist who is converted to Christ and is now my brother or sister in Christ than I am to my very own blood relative that doesn't yet know Jesus think about the implications of that and how huge and how scandalous and yet how beautiful that is do we do we feel that way about the people that are in this room And has the gospel pushed on us to actually move us outside of our little social circles so that we would interact with one another in this way? As the Psalms say when there's a spiritual point there, in other words, meditate on that. All right, let's go back to Colossians. Sorry about my nose. Okay, back to verse 27. Then we'll end on this point. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully, Works within me. Okay, so there's this phrase that Christ is in us and we are in Christ. And that knits us together with people that are also believers in ways that are far more powerful than we understand and far more barrier breaking than we probably actually live out in the church. But then, secondly, this is an amazing notion that Christ Himself comes and He actually lives in us. The implications of this are I mean, we could spend weeks and months just dwelling on that alone. Just the implications, the ramifications, what has happened in our life that Christ literally comes and he takes up residence in us. Martin Luther, the great reformer, called this he called this the great exchange. And this verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, I think we got it on the screen. It says that God made him, meaning Jesus who knew no sin, to actually be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So leave that on the screen there, because I want you to see this. What Martin Luther, the great reformer in the history of the church, said is that this verse is saying, and every theologian agrees with this, is that on the cross, Jesus takes our sin. There's what's called a double deposit, a double Imputation. On the cross, Jesus takes our sin. It literally becomes His. He becomes everything that we have done, committed, all of our acts of rebellion, past, present, and future. He dies for the sins of His people for all time, once and for all. And then, but it it doesn't stop there, then we receive His character. We receive His righteousness. We receive Christ's physical. Literal, spiritual character presence in our body—it becomes ours. It's an imputation. It is—it's a deposit into our account. We're—we're we're, um, just to kind of give you an analogy, we are uh, uh, applying for a mortgage, and um, there's this crazy little thing called a recession going on, and evidently, the, some of the companies that gave out loans the last couple years maybe you've heard about this, have been doing a poor job of giving out loans. And it was like, oh, you got a pulse? Yeah, here's $500,000. And so so I think that's caused the market to crash. I don't know, maybe, maybe you guys are aware of this. I mean, I've just been watching the news lately. But um, let me just put it to you this way, boys and girls. Getting a loan nowadays is a little bit more um, detailed than it used to be a couple years ago. And Jennifer and I are finding that out. And we had to send... Uh, a statement like our bank statement for the last, and this is normal. I don't think it's because we're like, you know, uh, you know. I think they're racially profiling me as an Italian or something. I don't know. Like, where's this money coming from? But I think this is what everybody has to go through, and uh, they, what, what you have to explain your deposits, like all your deposits that are over, like you know, you have a deposit for seven dollars and thirty eight cents on March first. Uh, what was going on there? <laughs> you know, I'm like, I, I cashed a check, but, but. What's happening is, and so we had this long list of deposits, right? Most of them were just like paychecks and regular stuff, but there was this one deposit out there that was kind of an unusual deposit that I, I didn't have any documentation for, and I couldn't remember what it what it was, and I couldn't explain this deposit. It was only like for you know a couple hundred dollars. I can't remember. I honestly can't remember what it was, and I searched for days for a receipt or some sort of thing, and I couldn't remember. But there's this. There's this deposit, this unexplainable, unearned, mysterious deposit that takes place in the heart and the spirit and the mind and the life of a Christian. And that's what this verse is saying, is that there is a there is a deposit in your life and Christ takes up residence in you and He's in you. He's with you. He's there. There's not just this cosmic transaction where millions of light years away, God looks down on us and sort of deems us worthy, calls us His and then lets us live the next 40 or 50 years on this earth to struggle and then maybe when we die we get zapped and we go to heaven. He comes in us and He gives us His power to live for Him. And by the way, his deposit is explainable. It's the cross. It's the willing sacrifice of God himself for us. So why is this a big deal? Because now when we're fighting sin, we realize that we're not alone. We realize that Christ is not thousands of miles away with his arms folded, shaking his head, wondering whether or not Brad is going to mess it up again this time. He is in us. His spirit is in us and goes with us wherever we are, empowering us to live for him in a broken world. So here's the inevitable question as we end. Is he in you? I mean, you knew that was coming, right? Is he in you? The way that you are sure that that has happened is by living out that verse in 2 Corinthians 5. You believe that Christ died on the cross for you, for your sin, and that all of your sin was transferred onto his shoulders, and that you confess. That, that is your only hope in this world, and then you receive his presence, his spirit, his righteousness, his grace, his forgiveness, his power, then to live in this world. How do you do that? You do that by repenting and believing, turning from self-reliance and trusting and embracing as the treasure and the highest truth in your life, what Christ alone has done for you. When you believe in that, the Bible says that you become a Christian. You don't need to raise your hand or repeat a prayer. You just, right now, you need to repent and believe. Say, Christ, I trust you for the first time. And when you do that, Christ comes in you. Have you done that? And in a little bit, the guys are going to come back and sing some songs. You can do that right now. If you need some help with that, a couple of us will be down here to pray with you and help you and encourage you and explain more fully if you need it. But that that's how you become a Christian. And then secondly... The next question is, is, like me, are you a Christian that is struggling with life in a broken world? And you need a reminder of the power and the presence, grace, spirit that resides in you. Christ himself is in you, young man, when you're struggling against temptation and pornography, and lust, and anger. Christ is in you, young lady, when you are struggling against self-esteem, and worth, and depression. Christ is in you, empty nest grandpa and grandma, who are struggling with whether or not your life is amounted to anything, and whether or not there's really anything out there for you for these next 15 or 20 years. Christ is in you. Christ is in you, selfish, upper, middle class, self-absorbed Christian who needs to be pushed out and realize that you are more connected to your poor brother or your black brother or your Gentile totally different from you, brother, than you are to the people that you graduated from high school with who are your silly little social clique that you just let inform you and guide you and dominate your life. Christ is in you. He's pushing on you to live like it. Christ is in you, husband and wife, who are at each other's throats, come to church and put on a happy face, Because, God forbid, anybody actually see what was really going on so that you could get help from the body of Christ that's there to nurture you. Christ is in you to help you treat your wife like Christ treated the church. Christ is in you. Christ is in you. Let us pray. Father. This is a simple truth, but it is also a mysterious truth. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around the fact that God lives in us if we are Christians. But there may be no more important truth than we need to wrap our brains around than that. So, God, would you help us? Lord, if there is somebody in this room today who has not yet repented and believed in Jesus for the salvation of their soul, God, would you cause them to do that right now? Would you bring life with the wind of the Spirit, blow and bring salvation and forgiveness and redemption? them right now and would you seal them with your Holy Spirit would you give them the gift of repentance and would they confess and turn and believe in Jesus alone for their salvation God would you be so kind as to cause somebody to do that right now Lord for the rest of us who know you Lord would you speak to us by your Holy Spirit right now and would you Press on us to consider what it means to have Christ living in us. And then, God, would we respond in worship, in repentance, in confession, in joy, gladness, and gravity in a hundred different ways. Would we respond to you in Jesus' name? Amen. Let's all stand. Communion is available. If you want to receive communion, if you need prayer, come on down. Don't be bashful. Let's get prayed for. Let's spend the next few minutes responding to God and worshiping.